1: Hello and welcome to the Jewish Studies channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Moses Lappin, and today I'm joined by Professor Yair Minsker to discuss his book The Many Deaths of the Jew Sus, The Notorious Trial and Execution of an Eighteenth-Century Court Jew, published in 2017 by Princeton University Press, and winner of the National Jewish Book Award in History. Professor Minsker is Professor of History at Princeton University. Joseph Sus Oppenheimer, the Jew Sus, remains an iconic figure, memorialized in histories, biographies, as well as fictional accounts, perhaps most infamously the 1940 Nazi propaganda film Jutsus. In 1733, Oppenheimer became the quote-unquote court Jew to Karl Alexander, the Duke of the German state of Württemberg. When Karl Alexander died, Oppenheimer was put on trial and condemned to death for his quote-unquote misdeeds. On February 4th, 1738, Oppenheimer was hanged in front of a large crowd just outside Stuttgart. Our topic of conversation today, The Many Deaths of the re reinvestigates Oppenheimer, his life as a Jew, and his execution, and centers on four contemporary voices, people who knew and wrote about Oppenheimer and his case. Fascinatingly, rather than presenting a single narrative, these four voices often come in conflict with one another. We will meet the judge-executioner, Philipp Friedrich Jaeger university professor Christoph David Bernard, Mordechai Schloss, the only contemporary Jew to write an account of the case, and finally, David Fassmann, Oppenheimer's first biographer. Minsker weaves the lives of these four individuals into the history of the Jewsus in a way that not only helps us understand the case at hand, but a larger narrative in Jewish and German history. The book probes the connection between the general history of antisemitism and Oppenheimer's specific case, and the nature of the relationship between Jew and state. I'm happy to be sitting here together with Professor Minsker in Tel Aviv. Uh, welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Thank you, uh, Moshe. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Great. So uh, let's begin. Um, and if you can tell us a little bit of
0: background, maybe the biography of Yudzus of and, and sort of the context in which he lived. So, as you mentioned, he is... He's one of the most iconic figures in the history of anti-Semitism and the topic of many novellas, novels, uh, theater, uh, plays, even an opera over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries. The original story, the historical Oppenheimer, is, has actually had a relatively straightforward uh, career path. He was born in Heidelberg in West Germany uh, towards the end of the uh, 17th century. The exact date is open for debate. Maybe we could say something about this later. And for uh, a couple of decades, he has the life of an ordinary court Jew, that is, a banker or financial advisor to one of the many, many princes in uh, Central Europe at the time. In 1733, as you mentioned, he becomes the personal court Jew of Karl Alexander of the Duchy of Württemberg, and for four years he makes quite a lot of money. Uh, It's hard to know exactly how much, but just to give you a a taste of uh, what we know about him, at one point he buys a palazzo, a palace in Stuttgart, for the sum of 15,000 gulden, at a time where you could buy a whole house in the city for 600. So certainly a very wealthy individual. But then Karl Alexander dies. Suddenly he has a heart attack. And the local authorities arrest Oppenheimer. They put him on trial. And 11 months later, he's executed in a spectacular way just north of uh, Stuttgart. So, you know, bare bones wise, this is, I guess, the story of Joseph Oppenheimer, the notorious Jews.
1: Can you uh, reflect a little bit on the context in which he lived? Uh, you talk a little bit about a court Jew. Uh, what, what does that mean?
0: It means that in the especially in the seventeenth and eighteenth, let, let me take a step back and say this: court Jews, as even Jews in seventeenth and eighteenth centuries uh, knew very well, are members or part of Jewish history uh, per se. Um, so, one example, one great example is Joseph the Righteous of uh, of the Book of Genesis, who was in many ways a court Jew, a financial advisor to Pharaoh a man who helped his brothers uh, in all kinds of uh, interesting ways, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's also, of course, true in today's is Purim. uh in Israel. Uh, it's true of uh, Mordechai and Esther and their story. It's also a courtly story. But in the 17th and 18th century, especially in Central Europe, which consisted back then of hundreds of small principalities, we find between 1,500 and 2,000 such court Jews whose job basically is to help local rulers uh, get loans, get uh, military uniforms, all kinds of supplies to their states when they have political difficulties of attaining the same things from, say, the local parliaments or estates. So in very broad brushstrokes, I would say Oppenheimer, at first at least, is one of the hundreds and hundreds of core Jews in Central Europe uh, around the uh, you know, 17th and early 18th centuries.
1: Why do you think this story in particular remains of such interest to people? Uh, and why has it become the focus of so much controversy?
0: Two things uh, I would say. One relates to the 18th century itself. And what we have to realize about court Jews in general, and Oppenheimer's case in particular, is that the huge majority of court Jews at the time were not incredibly wealthy. So they were... No small-scale handlers who got a little bit of this or a little bit of that and sold uh, this particular item to this particular duke, and then moved on. So definitely not very wealthy. Oppenheimer's case is one of those cases where a Jew becomes very significant in one of those uh, small territories uh, in Central Europe. Um, He is basically for four years the the number two in the duchy. He runs the bureaucracy and the uh, fa- financial mechanisms of, of this uh, duchy. So for people at the time, it was a spectacular, a sensational case. Yes, uh, a really important person uh, falling from power and ending up uh, on the callows. This would be interesting today. It was certainly interesting for people in the 18th century. The other question is why does he become, over the course of especially the 19th and 20th centuries, such an iconic figure in the history of anti-Semitism. And that is, uh, there's a historical part of it. You mentioned uh, the infamous movie, uh, the Nazi movie from 1940, which was a very important movie at the time, watched by over 20 million people in occupied Europe. And a movie which became, after the war, the topic of another trial, this time of the director of the movie, a man named uh, Harlan who was accused in 1948 and 49 of crimes against humanity, no less, just because he created this movie. So there's something about this movie that is uh, very important. But more generally, I would say that ever since the 19th century, the early 19th century, where the questions about Jewish emancipation and acculturation, assimilation, etc., became uh, very important, especially in the German-speaking world, uh, the story of Jesus became a kind of parable kind of metaphor for the larger story of german Jews because here is a man who tried to fit in and succeeded for a while but eventually fell from power this is a man who dressed even in a non particularly jewish way this is a man who certainly had some uh, uh, romantic relation uh, relationships with uh, non jewish uh, wives so there's sex involved in this too and very importantly there's you know there's money involved and there is the tragic end that you know, symbolizes the fate of German jewelry um, uh, in general for us. And so, instead of dealing with the larger story of German jewelry over the course of the 19th, 20th century, one way of dealing with the size, the uh, size of the story, is to concentrate on one particular case that somehow exemplifies all these different light motifs that you can find in Oppenheimer's story back in the 18th century.
1: How did you come to write this story? Can you give us a a sense of the background that you went in with and how the project unfolded uh, your research and writing of the book?
0: So this is a very well known story. Uh, All historians um, in Germany and Israel know about this, Uh, less so in the United States, interestingly. I think the reason for this, uh, by the way, is because in the English speaking world, we do have a similar figure that already fulfills this function. And that is the f- very important, of course, a figure of uh, Shylock, of the Merchant of Venice. So um, listeners who are not familiar with Oppenheimer's story just should realize that this is really the German version of Shylock. It is an extremely well-known figure in German history, in general, not only German, Jewish history. And so when I had a chance to stop in Stuttgart one day, uh, several years ago, I thought I would go and just look at some of the sources from this trial, having read a couple of uh, actually quite uh, excellent biographies of Oppenheimer, and I was really uh, dumbfounded by what I saw, because in the cellars of the State Archive in Stuttgart, you can see even today more than 100 boxes full of documents from the 11 uh, months of the trial. Um, uh, This is uh, close to 10 uh, 10 yards of material it's just over 30,000 pages. I had no idea that so much material survived from the trial. no, no one has uh, had, had said this before. And what became even more intriguing and the reason why I decided to write the book in this somewhat you know peculiar way that uh, that uh, it's uh, structured is because I realized very quickly that no one is telling the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth in this case. In fact, there is no one story here. There are many stories. Hence the title of this book, The Many Deaths of Jesus, and not just The Death of the Jesus. So let's talk
1: a little bit about the structure then. How did you, how is the book structured, and, and why did you choose this particular structure as a way of uh, giving over the story, uh, particularly as you mentioned with the background of the number of biographies that are written by him in addition to other contextual studies in which he plays a part?
0: The first thing that we have to, I think, be very honest about is that even though we have 30,000 pages of documents about this guy, there's a lot about him that we don't know. And that is not a coincidence, uh, and this is not some kind of a postmodernist stance towards the past and what we can or cannot know. But we have to remember that this guy was incarcerated. Uh, this is not a you know criminal justice system where you can defend yourself in the way that we do today. And uh, he was not allowed to present his side of the story. And so all we have are other voices, the voice of the judges in this case and the voices of people who visited him towards the end of his of his life uh, it was uh, permitted for people to go to go and, and, and meet him, the voices of people who began writing biographies uh, of him even uh, as the trial was unfolding and so instead of pretending that I know every single fact about the story, which I think would have been very misleading, I decided to try to figure out how different people looked at his case, why they decided to tell it in this particular way, and what can we learn still after we analyze these documents uh, very uh, very closely, what we, what we can still know about what happened, what he did and did not do. And so the book is constructed as a kind of a Rashomon, uh, four different accounts of by uh, contemporaries of Oppenheimer and as you said, it begins with a description of the uh, group of judges assigned to his case and how they came up with the accusations and uh, we have a lot of uh, fascinating uh, documentation about them. I continue with a description of what is surely the most uh, psychologically revealing account of Oppenheimer on the eve of his execution, written interestingly and very importantly as I uh, demonstrate in the book, by a convert from Judaism who happened to be a university professor not far from Stuttgart. I uh, continue after this with, as you mentioned, the uh, one and only account by a one of Oppenheimer's co-religionists, another Jew, who got to meet Oppenheimer on the eve of the execution and wrote an extraordinary document, truly an extraordinary document that um, describes his life and his execution. And I conclude with a somewhat uh, bizarre, but still very important account by a man named David Fassman, who is one of the earliest Oppenheimer biographers.
1: Before we get into the book itself and talk about these four voices, um, could we talk a minute a bit about method? Uh, You mentioned in the introduction four different ways in which previous historians have approached the subject matter, historians and, and people who wrote fict- fictional accounts, um, people who were silent on all the information that wasn't there and, and they couldn't give over, and people who tried to give over reception history about the case and people who constructed um, fictions as well, or people who, who limited themselves just to sort of reconstructing a, a factual a, a account of the case. Um, and you come out with some sort of fifth alternative um, that allows you to uncover... a Many new elements of the story. Can you talk a little bit about what you call the polyphonic history?
0: Absolutely, it's a very important concept in the book. What I what I want to do, what I wanted to do, and I think what actually happened quite successfully in the end, is not to limit our view of openham to one story and one story only. I think it's true in many ways uh, to life in general. Uh, you know, we can be different persons to different people. Um, we change over time. We are perceived differently by different people, and it is, I think, a mistake by many historians to pretend that this is not the case. And I remember uh, when I was writing the very last pages of the book, I was, I was looking, I was in my study, and I was looking at uh, the book uh, bookladen uh, shelves in my, in my in my library, and I said to myself, How is it possible? We have all these wonderful, wonderful books of history where no one, no historian is ever saying that they don't know something or that there are other alternatives, that we insist so strongly on presenting just one uh, account of uh, important cases. And I wanted to avoid this as much as I could. The fact that the story is very complicated in Oppenheimer's case only made it easier for me to decide to go down that route.
1: So let's, let's get into the book itself, and I think we'll weave back in some of the methodological choices that you made and how they play themselves out. Um, the first voice you bring is that of the inquisitor or, or, or judge. Um, who was he, and can you tell us a little bit about the, the trial?
0: Very important, of course, to anyone who's interested in this iconic uh, case is to realize who were the judges, uh, where they came from what story they told about Oppenheimer? why did they condemn him to death? The reason this is so important is because Oppenheimer, as we said, his story became iconic in the history of anti-Semitism. And so we can ask, and we should ask, is this really a classic anti-Semitic case? Is this a blood libel of source or is this something else? And through the stories of the judges and how they come up with a description of Oppenheimer's alleged crimes, I think you can get an answer, at least a partial answer, that the case here is not as anti-Semitic as people tend to think. How can we do this? When we follow the main inquisitor, the inquisitor judge in this case, uh, the man who's responsible for figuring out the factual part of the verdict, uh, a judge named Yeager, who, as I show uh, in a way that is, I think, almost too detailed in the book, is actually involved several years before Oppenheimer's uh, trial begins in another trial of a different person, a woman, uh, not uh, not a Jew, who is accused basically by him of the same crimes that he's about to, two years later, accuse Oppenheimer of. So that's already interesting that basically the same accusation by the same guy exists two years before Oppenheimer is even arrested. So interesting. The second thing that is really fascinating about him is that during that earlier trial, he actually defends Jews. Yeah? He said that this woman, who happened to be the mistress of uh, the previous uh, Duke of Württemberg, misused and abused and even incarcerated some uh, core Jews, not Oppenheimer, but others. And so we have this guy who ends up writing some very vicious things about Oppenheimer, but who is actually not against Jews in general and who had a story about Oppenheimer even before Oppenheimer was uh, uh, appeared on the scene. Finally, and I think very importantly, the man who helped uh, exonerate the, the the woman just two years before Oppenheimer's trial was none other than Oppenheimer himself. That is, there was a personal issue here, uh, apart from everything else. Uh, and Jaeger, I think uh, uh, it's, it's right to portray him as a man who did this not necessarily because of anti-Jewish sentiments, but because of a lot of personal and political reasons that were not necessarily directly related to anti-Semitism. Finally, and I think very importantly for our listeners, the classic ingredients or the classic motifs of a blood libel case are not present here. Oppenheimer is accused of many things. Uh, The murder of Christian uh, babies is not one of them. Uh, It's not about host desecration. Uh, And it's not about uh, other components of a classic blood libel case. So I think that uh, when it comes to Oppenheimer's case itself and the judges in this case, anti-Semitism, though it exists uh, sometimes, is certainly not the the moving engine in this case.
1: So what was the judgment in the end? And can you describe a little bit about what... The case was like as it was unfolding? Um, Did it gain such uh, popular attention only because of the gruesome spectacle of his death? Um, Or while it was happening, was there
0: some some popular involvement in the case? A lot of people were very interested in this because of various reasons, right? It's not one story, it's many stories. Some people were definitely anti-Semitic. Some people wanted to see the Jew die. Yes, it was maybe not uh, Jaeger himself, but others. There were uh, uh, people in the population who uh, who uh, joyed at the prospect of a very powerful man falling from power, and you know we know we know that feeling even today. You know we want to see some kind of uh, I don't know political drama unfold because we are spectators of politics and we enjoy this. And very importantly, because Oppenheimer was a very wealthy man towards the end of his life, there were many people who had a financial stake in this including, and we can talk about this a little later, but perhaps when we talk about uh, the relationship between Oppenheimer and other Jews, including other Jews, who, when they realized that Oppenheimer was about to fall, got involved in in the trial, not in support of Oppenheimer, but uh, testifying against him, in the hope, essentially, to be compensated financially for doing this.
1: Were there people who supported him? What was his side of the case like? I understand that he wasn't able to present his own story, um, but was there some resistance to to this perspective uh, of persecuting?
0: Yes, very interestingly. Uh, in fact, what what happens with Jaeger, who works actually very hard, is a very hard worker, who collects all those you know thousands of pages of documents. The reason he collects all these documents is that he doesn't succeed in finding a smoking gun in this case. So he goes, he basically asks the entire world and, and, and his wife, you know, give me something against Oppenheimer. He doesn't succeed, in it, and that's, for, that's why he continues to work day after day. He interrogates Oppenheimer for uh, 45 straight days, essentially twice a day, in the morning and in the afternoon, and trying to figure out something against this guy, but can't. And very interestingly, when Oppenheimer is arrested, he's arrested in his house, um, the authorities also arrest everybody else who was in the house. That's uh, 55 persons. And they interrogate them too. And you can find among these people uh, Jews, but also non Jews. Um, Washerwomen, for instance, and servants, and so on and so forth. And it's very interesting and very important to realize that the testimonies of some of these people uh, are in support of Oppenheimer, which means. I mean, I'm talking about the non-Jews among his domestics, which means the battle lines in this case are not between the good Jews, on the one hand, who uh, are victims of all, as if uh, we're talking about one block here, and the Gentiles who just want to uh, kill the Jew. But actually, more interesting uh, than this, there are Jews who oppose Oppenheimer. There are non-Jews who actually support him, refuse to incriminate him. It's a more complicated story than the 19th and 20th uh, century uh, led us to believe. If we can take a, a
1: brief methodological tangent, uh, as you were sort of working through the documents yourself, um, did you feel at all like the judge? I mean, in a sense, the judge is also a historian in some sense, trying to cover uncover something about the past, um, and you have access to many of the same documents or the documents that he constructed. Uh, what was that like, and do you feel any sort of I don't want to say sympathy, but I would say uh, um, some sort of perspective that you share with the judge.
0: I think it's a, it's a, it's a profound question because, uh, you know, uh, historiography, the writing of history and uh, the legal uh, legal science have a lot in common. Um, I think that in the past, Oppenheimer, throughout the 19th and 20th century, including maybe also in this book, he has been put on trial again and again, which is interesting. Interesting because this icon of modern anti-semitism is in that respect very different from the classic image of the wandering jew that in many respects oppenheimer replaces in the uh, european imagination right the wandering jew is a jew who never dies whereas in our, di- in our day in the 19th and 20th centuries um, oppenheimer has to die over and over again in, in our works. so it's many deaths right um i uh, at the same time really tried my best not to say that I know exactly what he did or did not do, even though sometimes it's clear that he didn't do uh, certain things, uh, because it's, it's, you know, three centuries later, I don't think that's the main point any, anymore. And there's a lot uh, of other things that we can say about his case, regardless of the question of guilt. What was he found guilty for at the time? So at the time, this is a different criminal justice system than we have today uh, in the English-speaking world. So today we have a judge who presides over what we call this the uh, adversary uh, system, where you have a judge presiding over two sides who compete against each other. Uh, in Central Europe in the 18th century, and to a certain extent even today, uh, we have the inquisitorial system, not to be conflated with the necessarily with the Roman Inquisition or the Spanish Inquisition, in which there is a professional judge whose task is to find out the truth, regardless where that leads him. Uh, it's always him, actually, never her. And so, at first, he's not accused of anything. There are vague suspicions about him, and it's Jäger's role to figure out what happened. And so he works really, really hard, uh, interrogates over 200 um, uh, witnesses, uh, collects a lot of other material to try to figure out um, what Oppenheimer did or did not do. But at the end of the day, when it when he sits down to write the factual part of the verdict, actually has very, very vague things to say about Oppenheimer, that he uh, was involved in all kinds of misdeeds without really specifying why he is condemned to death. Uh,
1: Let's go on to to the second voice that you bring, and that is uh, Christoph David Bernard. Uh, Who was he and what does he add to the case uh, that we didn't get from the judge?
0: So Christoph David uh, Bernard, I'll uh, pronounce his name in the German way, Was a convert for Judaism who probably came from um, from Lviv or Lemberg, as it's known in Yiddish, in what is today uh, the Ukraine, and who became, like many other converts at the time, a university professor teaching Hebrew and Aramaic in Tubingen, which is uh, the main university or the only university in in, uh, Württemberg at the time, and Bernard. Uh, has a chance to meet Oppenheimer several days before the execution, and afterwards he publishes a remarkable account of their encounter. Remarkable because it's, it's really psychologically revealing. It's full of incredible descriptions of Oppenheimer as, uh, as Bernard puts it, as a walking corpse. So brittle that's what he says. So brittle he threatens to crumble if you touch him. So very moving passages about Oppenheimer. Uh, Uh, who's in a way dead even before his execution, but also a man who constantly interacts with Oppenheimer, tries to convert him to a certain degree, and as I show in the book, really tries to use this, to spin the story, if you will, in order to say something about himself. The issue with converts in the 18th century as today, or as 2,000 years ago too, is that no one can Truly or many people feel that they cannot be uh, fully believed. I mean, how can you know that a conversion is truthful or not? And Bernard, we have a lot of documentation about, suffered this throughout his life. So it didn't matter what he did, that he lived as a Christian for 30 years, that he was a university professor and uh, other things. He was constantly harassed because of because of his past. One incident that is worth mentioning is that uh, when he was in his 60s, um, uh, a ten-year-old boy used to uh, uh, stand just outside of his door in Tubingen and, and spit on him and call him all kinds of nasty names, a cursed Jew, just because thirty years earlier uh, uh, he was still a Jew. And in order to understand Bernard's account and his interaction with Oppenauer, we really have to understand this fact about uh, about uh, uh, Bernard, which is in a way also larger than this. Because many of our listeners probably know that one of the litmus tests um, distinguishing modern anti-Semitism from earlier forms of anti judaism is the question of conversion. In the past, Jews had the choice, oftentimes, of conversion or death. Many of them decided to die on Kedush Hashem, uh, but others decided to convert. So conversion was a way out of the conflict. As we know, in the 19th and especially in the 20th century, it didn't matter anymore. It was a different kind of anti-Jewish sentiment, what we call anti-Semitism. It's very interesting to see in Bernard's case that even though you know he lived as a Christian man for so many years, we have people who refuse to accept him as such no matter what he does. So in that respect, Bernard's case shows something about larger sentiments about Jews in uh, the duchy that... Eventually executed Oppenheimer, but also about the changing, a changing attitudes towards the abilities, the ability of Jews to enter general society at all.
1: I guess one of the strong themes that comes out from the book is, and, and it's implicit, but it's definitely there on a number of levels, and that is an in sort of investigation into the nature of truth, or how we can establish truth, or how we understand something like belief. You were talking about the convert. Um, and it happens on the level of the reader trying to un- unravel it. It happens on the level of the story- historian trying to reconstruct it. It happens on the level of people who were yud contemporaries in trying to understand what was going on. And perhaps it, it's one of the ways in which we can try and attempt to uncover his own voice in the sense of how he tries to convince other people about what his truth is. Right. Um, so I was wondering if you can reflect a little bit on on this sort of theme about the role of truth or or the many different types of truth that exist in, in this sort of uh, marketplace.
0: Let me say maybe three things about this. Um, I'll start by saying that I think this, the historian faces two I think two extreme positions here. One is to pretend, as we as I said earlier, to pretend that he or she knows everything now when it comes to you know events that took place 3 centuries ago i think there's a lot to be said about you know toning it down a little bit this omniscient position is not always very uh, successful and not not only uh, not uh, always very convincing and i don't want to uh, be uh, uh, on that part of uh, of the spectrum the other extreme is no less dangerous and that is supposedly the postmodern stance. you know, Extreme relativism. We can know uh, absolutely nothing. And that I think it's also, at the end of the day, is completely unconvincing. We need to find a place in between those two extremes, and that's really the field in which the historian uh, uh, operates. So my stance is is neither, you know, uh, empiricist. I would say, and it's definitely not postmodernist. It's something in between, and. From the point of view of Jewish history and Jewish tradition, I don't think that is uh, something uh, quite uh, extreme or uh, necessarily unusual because the Jewish tradition is a tradition of questioning the truth, of uh, understanding that, you know, the famous words of the Talmud, uh, it's not in the heavens, it's, it's our job to argue and to reach closer to the truth through arguments and through looking at things through different perspectives. In that respect, the story that I wrote about Jesus, this polyphonic history that I wrote, is actually uh, Jewish through and through.
1: Right, and in a sense, your argument is we approach truth by incorporating as many possible voices, even if they, in a sense,
0: conflict with one another. Sometimes we can say with, I think, a great deal of certainty that someone is lying. And when we have the evidence to show this, it's, it's absolutely necessary that we do so. But even when we can't know for sure certain things, we can say certain things nonetheless. Um, and it's 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 a little bit more complicated, it's more nuanced, but it's possible. And I think uh, when we look at the case of Jesus, uh, this, this particular individual from up close and far away, from a theological prism and a, li- a li- legal one, Uh, through Jewish eyes and theological eyes of Christians, I think despite all the prevarication, the contradiction that the sources contain, an image of Jesus does appear, does rise from the pages somehow, a three-dimensional picture that is moving and contradictory, but also, I think, very often quite profound.
1: Certainly, and something that obviously, because of the reception that we know has been so great, speaks to people over, over a long period of time. Um, let, let's move on to to the third voice that you bring, um, and that is Mordechai Schloss. Uh, how does this add another layer onto the
0: story? So there's a backstory here, which I have to tell because I think it's almost like a Cold War a spy story, and that is that I knew when I started working on this that you know th- that there were several trans- German translation of a supposedly or allegedly Jewish text describing what happened to Oppenheimer, but no one had seen the original. Uh, Hebrew text, if it even existed, uh, uh, before me. And so I myself uh, wasn't sure that such a, a, a document existed. When uh, a few years into the research, um, I got a very exciting uh, phone call from, from a friend who actually located a single um, exemplar of this Jewish text. It's actually very short. It's a pamphlet. It's uh, basically one page long. I you mean, know, very condensed uh, text, but nonetheless uh, one page, which described in very, very moving terms, but not without contradictions, um, a kind of a, a Jewish story of what happened to Oppenheimer. And so I was uh, really excited to figure out who is the man who was behind this, uh, what he was trying to do by publishing it, how much of it is reliable, etc., etc. And it turned out that the man who wrote this was another core Jew, in fact, Oppenheimer's greatest competitor before he rose to power. His name was Mordechai Schloss. It came from the ghetto in Frankfurt, the largest community in German-speaking Europe at the time. We can follow his every step in a kind of incredible way from his birth in the late 17th century until um, uh, his death in Stuttgart in uh, 1744. And this is a man who, at one point, despite... uh, feeling threatened himself by anti-Jewish sentiments in the in the environment, in the society, also gives a very um, uh, problematic, let's call it a very problematic testimony against Oppenheimer. Now, after the trial was over and Oppenheimer was executed, Schloss published this um, pamphlet in which he says, that uh, Oppenheimer was a complicated man, let's put it this way, who uh, committed all kinds of, maybe not crimes, but uh, transgressions perhaps against God and, and other Jews, but that nonetheless, now that he di- he's dead and that he died on the Kiddush Hashem, that he became a martyr to his faith, we should never question his uh, faith and in fact uh, spread his uh, story throughout the diaspora that the man, the righteous man, Joseph S. Oppenheimer, died in this particular way, uh, and even donated some money for the sake of um, of his memory. What is absolutely extraordinary about this uh, text is that throughout it, Schloss inserts in strategic places allusions to the story of Joseph the Righteous, Joseph the Patriarch. I mentioned earlier that Joseph the Patriarch in many ways is the first court Jew, and so it's very interesting that Schloss would make this uh, allusion. He was not the only one who did this, but uh, he's the only one from a Jewish, um, for, who created a Jewish source about Oppenheimer's death. And the reason he did this, I think, at the end of the day, is that he realized something about the Joseph the Patriarch, and he realized something about his own relationship with Jesus. The story of Joseph the Patriarch, which stands at the beginning of Jewish history, right? this is the story of how the sons of Jacob become the Israelites, right? It's a very difficult story. It's a cruel story. It's a horrible story, right? Of uh, of uh, of betrayal, of uh, attempted murder, about enslavement, about attempted rape or rape allegations, but also at the end of the day, of an amazing reconciliation, that unforgettable scene in chapter 45 of Genesis, where uh, many years after they had separated, the brothers come to Egypt and present themselves in front of uh, Pharaoh's main advisor, and he doesn't, Joseph doesn't reveal his identity to them right away, but if eventually when he does, he forgives them for all uh, that happened between them and tells them in those unforgettable words that, you know, I am Joseph your brother who you saw into the land of Egypt, but be not grieved or angry with yourselves that you did this, because it was not you who brought me here about God. Those amazing words of reconciliation and and forgiveness, and I think that Schloss was making those allusions to the story of Joseph the Patriarch for basically the same reason that he he knew that he betrayed Oppenheimer on the eve of his execution. He gave a, a, a damning testimony against him at the court of law that executed Oppenheimer at the end of the day. But he also wanted to kind of send us a message. Um, over the course of centuries, perhaps, that we are now receiving for the first time, that despite all that happened between them, at the end of his life, um, realizing that he was about to be executed, Oppenheimer had also um, reconciled with Schloss and other Jews and in fact, forgave him. And I think in that story, we see both the universal aspect of both Oppenheimer's story and you know, the biblical story, but also the particular situations where such a story becomes, as it were, incorporated, or, you know, takes on flesh, as it were, and becomes, you know, reality itself.
1: Can you reflect a little bit more about what uh, Oppenheimer's reception was after the case amongst Jews? Um, I think it's part of the the story that's perhaps lesser known, uh, and has been in some cases sort of suppressed a little bit. Um, But what was his afterlife uh, amongst Jews? Did he indeed become sort of the iconic figure that he did for non-Jews, um, or, or was his role somewhat less?
0: It's a complicated, I mean, it's a very important question. Uh, the the answer it has to be complicated because Jews did not uh, leave many documents about uh, Oppenheimer. So Schloss's pamphlet is the only contemporary evidence uh, I have of description of what happened to Oppenheimer do- during those uh, the last months of his life. And in the course of the 18th century, I am not aware of any other description of Jesus from uh, a Jewish perspective. It remains to be seen, maybe a future um, uh, researcher, a uh, future scholar could uh, shed more light on this, I think, very important uh, uh, aspect of the story, of the reception of the story, at least.
1: Right, that's quite shocking because you can imagine, as you mentioned beforehand, how important the case was to people as it unfolded. It's, it's striking that, Jews seemed not to incorporate this as history, right? I mean, they ignored it, they, they, there's some sort of intentionality not to continue to record it as something that's important to them, even though as it was unfolding, it was something important.
0: I mean, I'm just thinking aloud here, as I, you know, as I think about this question, I think two things that immediately come to mind is, first of all, we have to realize, we have written documents, We can hear what people are saying behind closed doors, and I can imagine that because this man was executed, he was considered a criminal, they didn't want to leave too much or maybe not any written evidence about, they actually felt about what was going on. The second thing is, um, even if it's true that they didn't speak about him as much as the general society, is that he was a complicated and, let's call him, a liminal figure in Jewish history in the sense that he didn't belong anymore to uh, to, uh, to an older generation of Jews, like Schloss himself, by the way, who dressed in a particular way, who took their religion very seriously, who would never even consider um, sleeping with uh, non-Jewish uh, women, etc., etc. And so I think it was hard to digest Oppenheimer's story uh, for Jews or to really place him in the right camp, at least not until the 19th or the 20th century, when in fact some Jews, most famously, Jörg Wolfsvangler, did use his figure to say something about, about the history of the, of the Jews. Um, let's move on to, to your fourth voice, um,
1: and that is his first biographer, David Fassmann. Who, who is he in, and what role does he play again in an additional layer on
0: this story? David Fassmann uh, is a, is a, was a very popular writer in 18th century Germany one of the most popular writers, I would, I would even say, although he's largely forgotten today. And the reason he's forgotten is because he wrote almost all his works in a strange genre for us today, even though it's a an absolutely fascinating genre, and it is called the genre of the conversations of the dead or the dialogues of the dead. So our listeners should imagine two dead persons, almost always in Fassman's case, uh, kings or queens, uh, advisors, sort of... Etc., uh, etc., et uh, who are dead and meet in the afterlife and have long conversations about what their lives uh, were all about. The reason why Fassmann chooses this genre, which can be dated back to antiquity, is that he lives, like Oppenheimer and like everybody else in my book, in a court society. And a court society is a place where uh, you really can't know the truth. You mentioned this word before. Um, so everything is done behind closed doors. Everything is about simulation and dissimulation and lies and stabbings in the back and so on and so forth. And so there is a problem from let's call it a narratological perspective in terms of how do you tell the story, of who to believe. No one is telling the truth. So what Fassman does is is saying, well, now everybody is dead, and they will now finally tell us what they really, really did behind those closed doors. And so you can find, in Fassman's case, Dialogues of the Dead containing Emperor Augustus uh, talking to uh, Louis XIV, um, uh, Elizabeth I of England talking to Catherine the Great of Russia, and stuff like this. Very, very interesting and very, very entertaining. Uh, he was incredibly popular at the time, sold a lot of copies and made a lot of money. Fassmann also wrote several dialogues of the dead that contain our friend Josephus Oppenheimer, and they are many in many respects quite extraordinary. Because we now hear in the first person, Oppenheimer supposedly, allegedly, right, from beyond the grave, telling us about what he really did. You know, I took the money, or I didn't. I met this person. I met Karl Alexander. I met his wife, and so on and so forth. And also, very movingly and quite unbelievably what happened to him at the end of his life, including, uh, you know, uh, they took, they bound my hands and knees, they put me uh, on the carriage, they drove me to the execution site, they raised me onto the gallows, they put the noose around my neck, they strangled me, I was dead. I mean, incredible stuff. Um, you really, you start reading this, these things, you can't really stop. The importance of, of such descriptions is manifold, uh, sometimes we can see in those descriptions, Fassmann had very good um, connections in Woltenberg, or at least in the publishing world, and we can see him very often in real time telling us what is happening in Stuttgart as the trial is unfolding. So sometimes he's telling us things that we don't know from any other source. But I think more most interesting, and it's, it touches on the question of the history of anti-Semitism, we see here an example of someone who is not necessarily a sympathizer of Oppenheimer, but who nonetheless has this amazing ability to describe the world through the victim's eyes. And the reason why this is so important is that I think, especially in the English speaking world, we tend to think that one step towards, you know, a better world is this ability to look at the world through someone else's perspective, to walk in someone else's shoes, to look at uh, a situation through someone else's glasses where, in this case, and not, I think it's not the only one, we see an example of someone who can do this uh, extremely well, but without actually being a better person for it. And, uh, you know, I use the line from the Beatles that I really like, you know, a lot of us believe that, you know, if, if you only uh, see it my way, we can work it out. I think Oppenheimer's story and Fastman's description of it show us that this is not necessarily the case. And when you think about the most horrible um, event in the history of anti-Semitism, the destruction of European Jewry in the Second World War, we also need to realize that it's not only because people didn't see the Jews or didn't understand what the Jews uh, felt, but in fact, that quite literally, in the wake of the, of the war, people walked in other people's shoes and looked at the world through other people's glasses. What is more iconic than the glasses and the shoes in Auschwitz and other places, right? But still without a shred of empathy to the victims. And so, in a way, Fassmann's story, that begins as a kind of quirky, 18th-century Baroque account of conversations of the dead, rises towards the end of it to a, a saying that is really universal and disturbing in its simplicity, and veracity, if I may say so, about what it means and what it does not necessarily mean to be a moral human being wow i um
1: yeah it's quite quite a s- striking striking angle um I guess in reading the book, I think what's sort of m- most interesting that comes out from your method but also mm-hmm. is the most shocking when you read the book initially is the voice of the title character is not there. Uh, And that's obviously a limitation of the sources and and what was going on. But how do you think we can reconstruct the voice of systems or Oppenheimer himself? um, And what does it tell us about the story in general?
0: You know that over the past, I would say, 35 years or so, one of the leitmotifs of many historians' work was this idea that we can rescue the voices of the oppressed of the lower classes and so on and so on from history and give the oppressed a voice. I am personally of the opinion that in almost all cases, those voices are gone forever. What historians have are not voices. They have texts, they have language, not voice. It really makes a big difference, you know, uh, uh, listeners can imagine how you say a certain word or a phrase, you know, uh, to say that uh, I, dis- you know, I-, I disagree with you is one, th- is one thing, and to yell at you that I disagree with you is quite another. The text wouldn't tell us how to actually interpret this. And so in Zusser's case, we have this added problem that not only do we not have access to his actual voice, he was not allowed to even write a language, a text of his perspective. But, and that is I think a very important but, sometimes we can't observe someone directly, but we can observe the observers. Sociologists call this second order observation. So, you know, I can't watch uh, perhaps a football match, but I can watch the audience watching the football match. And by watching them, I actually can probably figure out pretty well what is going on on the turf. And I think that in Oppenheimer's case, we can do Pretty much the same so even without seeing him directly we can deduce from the way his image is refracted by other people what it was like to be him during those uh, the, the, during those uh, last months of his life and sometimes even um, what he did or did not do um, earlier in his life
1: yes to conclude with one final question Um, I was wondering if you can reflect a little bit about what sorts of generalizations we can make from this case. Um, You weave together the story of many individuals' lives in order to flesh out uh, a larger picture um, about a context and about a case that not only has resonated with many people till today, um, but teaches us a lot about Jewish history and the history of anti-Semitism, as well as obviously the historical method itself. Um, So was Oppenheimer an outlier at the time? Um, and what can we learn a little bit about German history and Jewish history um, and the history of anti-Semitism in general?
0: I think there, is, there isn't one single thing, right? The, the, one of the motifs of this book is, is plurality. I think there's a lot of uh, small things. I think we do see Oppenheimer emerge from the pages of this book uh, eventually, and because he's such an iconic figure in the history of anti-Semitism, this in and of itself is, uh, is very significant. I think we learned something about um, perspective and uh, that the Jew is not necessarily the other with a you know, capital O all the time, that people are able to see the world through his eyes and still uh, victimize him. And I think most significantly, and this is the, you know, the, way, uh, the way I think about my profession, we can get pretty close to a lot of people who lived a long time ago. Uh, not only Oppenheimer, not even primarily Oppenheimer, but you no know, more minor figures, the judges, uh, uh, converts, uh, other Jews, women. In that respect, uh, I hope that this book is only the beginning. I don't, I don't want to kill the subject by, by what I didn't, never intended to kill the subject uh, by writing about it, but in fact it's the exact opposite, to show us how much more we can still know about this, how many more deaths. Uh, Jesus suffered back in the 18th century and how much more work is left to be done to understand his uh, story better.
1: I would like to end our interview today by thanking Professor Minsker for joining us on the Jewish Studies channel of the New Books Network. We've been talking about his amazing new book, The Many Deaths of the Jewsus: The Notorious Trial and Execution of an 18th Century Court Jew, published by Princeton University Press in 2017.
0: plus.